I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to another episode of Twice Upon a Time and I am particularly thrilled that my guest today is Connie Hook for all sorts of reasons. She is a writer, presenter, illustrator and broadcaster. We both like the word broadcaster. It does sound quite grown up, doesn't it? Yeah, it has a maturity. (laughs) It does. I always think it's a little bit Joan Bakewell. Yes. That's my my aspiration. But particularly pleasing because obviously we have a great deal of shared history, more later, and also because you've chosen the most extraordinary book. Thank you so much for choosing Superfudge by Judy Bloom. Um, before we get on to the meat of the book itself, tell me, how, how did you get your original copy? Can you remember? So I, I was what we term as a reluctant reader growing up. I just thought reading's not for me. It's boring. It's a chore. And I was really put off, actually, because we read The Iron Man by Ted Hughes at school, at primary school, and it wasn't the book for me. Obviously, it freaked me out. Uh, and Super Fudge by Judy Bloom was the first book that I read that had no pictures in at primary school. And it was because it was a wet break time and we had to pick up a book from the shelf in the school classroom and thought, OK, I'll pretend to read this and began reading it and was gripped instantly and devoured the whole thing. And I remember thinking, this is how grown-up books are. I didn't think it was patronising. It didn't have pictures in. And so probably up till then, I'd only probably read a picture book cover to cover, a book with pictures, essentially. Um, and it's not even, it's a sequel to Tales of the Fourth Grade Nothing by Judy Bloom. It's about a little boy growing up in America. But it really resonated with me. I even remember reading the first page and there's this bit where, his mum is chopping carrots in the kitchen and she drops this bombshell. She breaks some news to him. And I remember describing him sort of spewing out bits of chewed up carrot across the kitchen and me thinking, that's how grown up books are written. (laughs) How old were you then? Oh, gosh. So I was in primary school. I must maybe, I don't know, eight, seven, probably. We had it upstairs and downstairs at primary school and I was still downstairs at that point. How funny they didn't entrust the smaller people to stairs. <laughs> but a graduate. Yes, and I remember thinking the, the kids upstairs, they're like adults. So did that switch you on to reading just Judy Bloom or lots of other things? Judy Bloom was what I call the gateway to reading other things. And I did read books before that, but they'd have to be like gimmicky, a choose your own adventure book. Or I remember I loved the Black Hand Gang which were these books where you looked at the pictures and found clues to solve mysteries. And I didn't really like just sort of straight reading a book with just words, essentially. So, yeah, thanks, Judy. 
You've done good. So did you go out and buy Judy Bloom for yourself afterwards? So then I read Tales of the Fourth Grade Nothing, which is the book that comes before this. And yeah. so in the book, Peter has a little brother who's an absolute nightmare uh, called Fudge, his little brother Fudge. And then the bombshell of news that I uh, told you about that his mum tells him, like literally on page one, I think, if I remember correctly. I'm actually going to yeah, yeah. look inside. Yes, there we go. Um, so it's a great opening. It dives right in, which I really like. It gets you gripped from the get-go. She announces that she's having another baby. And so his whole world is torn apart because he hates his little brother. And so he hates the thought of another child coming into the family and decides he wants to run away and all of this stuff. So it's a book about growing up and maturing as a young child. And I mean, everyone always seems to know forever and are you there, God, it's me, Margaret, which I progress to later on. But yes, her super fudge and tells of the fourth grade, nothing I really do recommend to children that are reluctant readers. But then, you know, as I say, other people's gateway book might be The Iron Man by Ted Hughes. And some people, that's their favourite book. In fact, that's been a choice of one of my other guests. Diane Morgan, wasn't it? Exactly so. Because we had this discussion. (laughs) I think I started reading that book too young because I remember it scared me. Sort of the bits in the junkyard assembling and the red eyes. It's a tricky book, that is for sure. (laughs) I think it really freaked me out. How did your parents react to this newfound reading a little little germ. Did they did they approve of Judy Bloom? You know what? I think my parents were always glad when I was doing anything mildly studious at all. So yeah, reading a book would be on their tick list of good things uh, for me to do. I had two older sisters, so my elder sister was nine years older than me, and then my middle sister was three years older than me. So I was always sort of aspiring to do things that I probably wasn't ready for, because I just wanted to be a grown-up. From a really, really young age, I was into pop music, you know, Wham! or Culture Club, Duran Duran, like even younger than that, though. As soon as my sisters were into anything, I would just be into it as well. And so I think as well, because I was number three, Number ones get all the sort of good parenting and then number twos, the novelty wears off. Then number three just falls between the gaps. You know, it's a sort of declines the more kids you have. So I think they would sort of <laughs> despair of me uh, a bit because I was maybe not as disciplined as they had wanted. And I've always been a bit of a loud mouth. And I think that was probably down to my older sisters as well. Just that thing of having to more grown-up beings in the house to sort of copy. Did your sisters mind you copying them? I mean, the weird thing is, you know, they'd often be entrusted to look after me. So I think, as, I don't I don't think they cared as long as I just sort of didn't hassle them too much. So, you know, we grew up... Tagged in, along. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was thinking, nowadays parenting is so different to when we grew up, essentially. Um, everybody now, it seems, sort of revolves around their kids So it's like, oh, no, no, we can't do that. It's bath and bedtime at that time and so on and so forth. Whereas when I was growing up, it was literally, you know, you just tag along and fit in and do whatever your parents did. If they were going to friends' houses or whatever, I'd end up falling asleep upstairs on a pile of coats in a spare bedroom and my dad would lift me into the car and then, you know, transfer me to the bed having taken my shoes off. And I remember just things like, Kids would wait in cars outside shops. You'd just see kids waiting for their parents to like come out of a shop. You'd be carted off to social services these days. Um, so I think when reading did sort of 
come about. It was just another thing to do, essentially, another form of entertainment. I always, from a young age, I really loved doodling. And both of my sisters did. We used to do things like with, I don't know, doodle car brochures and we drew the hatchback model and the estate model and the saloon model and like sunroof, you know, all the features that the different sort of types of car have. And like really weird things like that. We'd like pass our time. I remember my dad would bring home that computer paper from work, reams and reams of Computer paper with the, oh, the one that was sort of joined together. Yes, with, yeah, yeah, with this sort of dot, yeah, yes. dot matrixy yes. with the green yes. lines on the back that is yes. like really massive. And so uh, then, you know, when I got into reading, I would make little books which I would illustrate and sort of staple together from this dot matrix paper. So yeah, I guess reading sort of fitted in nicely with the fact that I was bored often growing up. Well, that's a healthy thing, I think. And actually, it, it, it really plays into Superfudge, doesn't it? That notion of a different sort of childhood. Because to me, one of the really striking things about reading this book is how much freedom the children have. Yeah. Even Fudge, who is, I think, sort of four or five. Mm. His real name is Farley. Um, and part of the reason I'm not going to attempt to do a plot summary is because it a, wouldn't take very long, and that's not really what the book's about. You no, know, Peter and Farley and the, the new arrival, Tootsie the baby, or maybe Tootsie, have to move to Princeton because his father decides rather alarmingly and all of a sudden to Peter to take a year off and work on a book. And his mother, who had expressed an interest to go back to college now that she'd got you know, a baby who was old enough to do that, um, was going to give up her dreams of studying art history. So it, there is, there's such a brilliant setup. Mm to what actually happens in childhood, which is either nothing or everything all at once. You know, there are there are elements of big stuff happening here, not least the birth of a baby or him trying to run away to his grandmother's or one of the children goes missing a bit later. But actually, it doesn't feel like plot-driven at all. And what I was really struck by reading it now is that of all the writers for children that I've read, the words on the page are almost less important than the feeling you have reading them, mm. which is an amazing trick to pull off, I think. And she does it, I'm sure, without thinking. I mean, given the the amount she's written, and Judy Bloom, thankfully, still with us at 85, has written absolutely masses of books, including for adults, all of which have been bestsellers. But it seems to be almost automatic writing that she just channels this 12-year-old boy struggling with what he's struggling with, all sorts of things, from a sibling rivalry to friendships to how he views his parents to, spoiler alert a bit later on, whether or not uh, Santa Claus actually exists. Actually, I was thinking when I was prepping for this that, you know, when in a programme that we both did, we'd frequently have to say, you know... Um, now I'm going to do something for, you know, mummies or daddies or people who look after you. So can you make sure they leave the room? And with this one, I think, can you make sure the children leave the room? Because yeah. we're going to talk about a lot of things they may not want revealed. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> it's funny, though, because, you know, even you just describing it there, it does feel like quite a grown up book for children, doesn't it? Yes, and I, absolutely. I think that's what really appealed to me because I didn't feel it was sort of patronising. Even now when I'm writing my own books for kids, there is this thing where I like things to sort of be realistic or plausible. And sometimes when the publishers are saying something like, oh, can that be an explosion or can you make that bigger or, you know, and I'm like, but that wouldn't happen in real life because there is this real push to sort of heighten everything. And that's what I like about this book. Nothing is heightened. There's no magic. There's no sort of wizards. There's no sort of 
arch villainous characters that are sort of out of Scooby-Doo, essentially. And yeah, it's just absolutely a page turner and it's compelling and it's gripping. And I think as a kid, I really liked that. And even now as a grown up, I do, when I'm watching drama or anything, I'm drawn to the really plausible. You know, me and my husband sit there and go, that wouldn't happen in real life. Or people don't talk like that. And this book sort of, I think, paved the way for that. Absolutely. People do talk like that. And it's it's so loving as well, isn't it? That there's a brilliant bit quite near the beginning when he's absolutely horrified by this news. And like all 12-year-olds, he's very contradictory because he's first of all appalled that his mother is known for four whole months without telling him. Yeah. Whereas a bit later on, when they are talking about Santa Claus, he says rather movingly, I wish my parents would keep secrets from me for longer. And I think it's that these are at opposite ends of the book, but they're absolutely how you feel as a child, caught between these two worlds. Yeah, absolutely. You're tussling with so many things growing up. And at that age, your brain is developing and shaping and forming. You're changing your sort of 12. You're starting to turn into sort of the adult you'll become. And Everything he goes through is so relatable. And the fact that, you know, I picked up because, you know, books are to do with empathy as well. And, you know, feeling that you feel for the characters. He was an American boy growing up in an American house, a totally different sort of lifestyle to mine. Yeah, I could really relate to him. And that's a real sort of skill to do. As, as a writer, I think, um, especially it's often harder for kids as well to get that because they haven't had the worldly experience of grown-ups. And he's living in an apartment yes. initially in New York yeah. and he has a dog, Turtle, yeah. and he, Peter, age 12, is charged with taking this dog out and not only that, to his horror initially until his grandmother, who is a great character in the book, as most grandmas are, um, gives him a pooper scooper and he has to pick up after his own dog. And I'm reading that and thinking, hang on a sec, (laughs) which 12-year-olds do I know? And of course, it isn't because they can't. It's because, as you said right at the beginning, they're not encouraged to to be that independent, to look after somebody else. At some point, he even changes his sister's diaper or nappy, as we Mm. say. You know, all these things are absolutely as relatable, but also it's a bit sad that we've lost so much of that childhood independence. Yeah, absolutely. It's so of the era that it was written. I remember, actually, I had a friend that I worked with at Blue Peter that was describing when he, him and his brother were 15 and I can't remember the other age, but, you know, not adults, essentially, sort of grown up children. Their parents went away and left them at home and then aunts and uncles would come and check up on them and stuff. And I was like, oh my goodness, that would never happen today. But... Yeah, and I think the thing is, nowadays, the whole system is different. The whole structure is different. Childcare is different. There's so much more on offer. The rules and regulations are different. You know, we didn't have seatbelts in the back growing up. I remember the car, you know, going around the corner. We had these vinyl seats and you just slide to the end of the car as it veered around a corner. Absolutely. And burn your legs if you were wearing shorts in the height of summer when the seats are so hot off this vinyl. But there's a, a programme actually on Netflix, if I'm allowed to say that, called Old Enough, which is a Japanese show. And it's really interesting because in Japan... Oh, yes, the baby's doing yeah. things. Yes, I've seen that. Oh, my it's, goodness. Uh, it's really interesting. But young <laughs> kids in Japan, uh, in, they have to walk to school on their own, primary school age kids, because it teaches them independence and it helps them to grow up quicker. So parents don't walk their children to school. So in this show, you get three-year-olds 
and even younger sometimes are doing chores. And sometimes they have to walk for, you know, a mile to this shop and then go and drop that off at the seamstress and, you know, been given a list of things to do. And these are kids that over here aren't even school age yet. And it's really interesting. They're mic'd up and it's interesting hearing their thought patterns and what they're saying and how they do these chores. And I did think, you know, in Asia even, in, in, you know, Bangladesh, for instance, where my parents came from, if you're too poor to have like a push shelf and at like three years old, the younger child will just be carrying the baby around everywhere. Whereas over here at, at three, if you say, don't pick up the baby, you'll drop the baby. Whereas from that age, you're made to grow up. And you're absolutely right, Janet, that over here, we've totally lost that. And I feel that with every generation, we lose a bit more of that. Yeah, there must have been mustn't there, a liminal space, which is somewhere between... When I'm watching that Japanese program, I think, don't, he's going to use that knife. He is going to use that knife. He's going to cut something. He's very small to be cutting something. But somewhere between that and the independence that this book, which was published in 1980, doesn't celebrate, just takes for granted, yes. you know, that, that Fudge goes to school on his bike very quickly. You know, he's, he's a preschooler. I mean, he's like four or five. Yes. And he goes to school on his bike. He's not particularly good at it. He falls off a lot. And everybody, again, you know, including his teacher, Mr. Green, says, well, that's how I learned to ride a bike too. So that sort of cotton wool around children yes. now, which does stop them interacting with a lot of the world that they might not be prepared to meet later. There's somewhere between that and letting a three-year-old use a knife, or maybe that's just me, because that really, that sequence. <laughs> but I do think it's it's really vivid about how it felt to be a child still feels to be a child how how the lack of agency you have and yet the sudden freedom in your head to think whatever you want and you can feel peter feeling those thoughts about friendship particularly that really struck me when He's moved to a new place. He makes a friend quite quickly. He's a very different sort of kid. And then one of his old friends comes to stay. And initially, they're very suspicious of each other. Then they start getting on. And he feels left out. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yes, I remember that. Yeah, Probably still have it now a bit, actually. Yeah, I mean, now it's 24-7 because kids have social media. So they can see who's communicating. It's like the school playground online 24 7 but yeah we can all yeah. relate to that feeling like left out in the school playground or like they're getting on more than me just that and all of the sort of things that peter goes through are so relatable even as a grown-up as well as as a child and i think that that's totally. why it's such a, such a brilliant book People often ask me what my regular London pub is, but that assumes there's a pub I can easily return to, so please stop asking that. London Pub Reviews, written by Paul Ewan and featuring Tim Key. A hat-trick podcast. Did you save my seat? Why? I'm at a completely different pub now, with different seats. Catch up. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Drinking with dignity. Yes, sir. Yes, madam. That's me all over. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's funny with this book, isn't it? Because I don't think Judy, well, she says absolutely categorically that she's not messaging. She's not setting out to write a book about an issue. She has never done that. She wrote a book, I know, forever about young sexual experience because her, her daughter, Randy, a name which is not, not popular over here, um, her daughter wanted a book about teenage sex when people didn't die afterwards or have something terrible happen or, you know, a, a traumatizing experience. But she said, I didn't, I didn't write it to write that. I wrote it for her. I wrote that book for her because I loved her and I wanted her to know that, you know, sex can be loving. So she's not issue led. But I did notice, and obviously this is reading it now and, and not being a 12 year old, that she does slide in what she thinks. I and mean, for example, one, one of the kids, Jimmy, that he subsequent that Peter subsequently meets in his new school, confesses to loving violence. He loves watching fights. He loves when people bleed. He's really excited by it. And then reveals <laughs> that his parents are divorced and he is seeing the school psychologist twice a week. Now this this is a this is a paragraph in the book. This is not a chapter. We're not dealing with Jimmy's trauma at all. But I thought for for Judy Bloom to write that and then to move on to, you know, how many Oreos can you eat today or you know, <laughs> is there enough milk left is is just an extraordinary way of like I say, it's almost automatic writing. But she obviously wasn't thinking anything other than maybe she'd met that kid or maybe she had felt it herself, or maybe she had a vestigial fear of it. You know, she she I notice is is twice divorced anyway. So it, she's not trying to preach about that. But she's just giving this extraordinary, almost throwaway insight into this other child, which is just such a gift to be able to do that without getting completely analytical about yeah. the subject matter and with explaining it from everyone's vantage point. She just moves on. And that's how that life. life is. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. That's how life is. You encounter loads of different people, some fleeting ships in the night, others you might engage with a bit more but it's not a sort of worthy book in any way yet it does touch on very real things and that can make you sort of think without over egging the pudding essentially which is a real skill and and really well done it's quite interesting isn't it because back in those days child psychologists, therapists, seeing uh, someone to sort of help mental issues and traumas wasn't really a thing over here. Oh, in 1980? No way. No. no. And I remember growing up thinking that's what they do in America. And, (laughs) and, you know, children over here now, some of them, that's what they do over here. And I remember another thing is, and I still think, I see it a bit in my kids to some extent, but Growing up, America was like this really cool place. It's still like that for kids. Yeah. (laughs) It is still like that. My seven-year-old grandson is obsessed with the idea of going to America and... As we were chatting, I said, "You know what? What do you what do you what do you want to see? What's the best thing?" And he went, "Oh, they have this thing, Walmart." Oh yeah, I know. This is this is it. My son is the same. It's YouTube. I blame YouTube, Janet. 
Um, he <laughs> basically said like he wanted to go to Target. Target, that's the other if, one. Yeah, because yes. they have Ryan toys. And I was like, what, what What? are you talking about? You know, and this is some YouTuber. This is like the world's highest paid YouTuber at the time, who was this eight-year-old kid that did these unboxing videos. And his first YouTube video, you know, his mum was a chemistry teacher and he lives in this flat. And now he's got a studio and an MTV crib style house and all of this because he's this mega rich YouTube kid. But I remember growing up in those days watching stuff like The Cosby Show. And just thinking how cool it would be to have a wall-mounted phone where the cord reaches across the kitchen, you know, things like that. And having more than three or four channels on your TV, all of that stuff. So I I think that was an added draw as well to the book. And a prom. Yes. Oh, gosh. All of that I might have stayed in school longer if we still had proms. I (laughs) read some of the Nancy Drew books and that whole thing of proms and cheerleaders and high school and sophomores and freshmen and all of that absolutely yeah look it's still having that effect on us now it's terrible she is so great though isn't i don't know if you've ever heard her judy bloom but she looks and sounds exactly like she should Mm -hmm. you know she she looks like the mom with an o that you would find after school you know with a well-stocked double fridge again american impressive but also quietly and then more noisily an activist her first book was published in 69 and she wrote with acclaim but no controversy until, as she says, the Reagan government. And then everything changed for her because book censorship became noisier and she started campaigning against it and she still does. She's extraordinary, I think, in the way that she has made her presence felt in in literature in a way she didn't have to. You know, she's remarkably successful. She could just say it is what it is. Mm. But of course, initially, you know, school teachers, librarians, parents, etc., started to form a little mob to say that her books were disgraceful and disgusting. And in fact, as, as a sidebar, I remember when Soph was about 12 in school, her English teacher said to me that, you know, he she had found Sophie reading Judy Bloom and would I like to take it out of her hands and give her something decent to read? which just goes to show, obviously, I did not do those things. But I also think it's just that absolute, um, well, it's it's deciding about something before you've even read it and not remembering what it feels like to be that age and have those feelings and have everything explored from, you know, the big things in this book, like Is Santa Claus Real?, to the tiny things when he says, you know, when I yawn, I can see my tonsils. You know, his, his, his world is as big as he is most of the time. And yet he's exploring this great expanse. And to stop a writer doing that just feels kind of wrong. Mm, I do remember, actually, as a kid, having a sore throat and spending ages scrutinising the inside of my mouth in the mirror to see if I could see my tonsils, to see if it was red at the back. Yeah, white yeah, dots. white, all of that yeah. stuff. And then when I decided it was very red, I was really impatient for my sore throat to go to see whether it was really not red when I didn't have a sore throat. But things like <laughs> that, as a kid, you do obsess for ages about little things like that. I remember trying to make one of my eyebrows move without the other one moving. That's how bored I was growing up, but spending hours in the mirror trying to master it. And that's the thing, just little by the by things in that book are so sort of relatable. That's what I love about other books. They just sort of stick to the plot and keep up the uh, jeopardy and all of this stuff. And that's not what life is really. But people don't write that in books because they think, well, it will be boring. But she manages to write it 
and it isn't boring. It's so interesting. And actually, I do find the lives of others really interesting and fascinating. You know what it makes me think now? What she does is trust children. And I think that the programme that you and I were both mm, on, you, mm. you for a great deal of time, Connie, you are the longest serving presenter. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> and me for a mere four years, me too. But it trusted its audience, yeah. didn't it? it? And it still does. Because yeah. you know, people, I'm sure they do ask you, they say, well, why do you think it's still on air? And I say, well, because it is still aimed at the audience it was intended for. It has never veered. And with a programme that's got a great long history where inevitably a lot of the appreciation societies are amongst people who are much too old to watch it. Uh, the tendency often is to aim at that audience a little bit, you know, to talk over the heads of children, yeah. to wink at them, you know, encourage that sort of... And Blue Peter has never done that. Absolutely. Never. It never talks down to children and it never sort of shies... You know, Blue Peter appeals predate comic relief children in need, all of that. And other programmes would think, oh, children will be bored by that or they don't want to know. But Blue Peter trusted the audience to stick with it and they really did. And you watch even programmes in that sort of seven o'clock to nine o'clock slot. And a lot of the things they cover and do, I often think, oh, I did that in Blue Peter. It's really... But I do think it's so important just to treat children like adults. And actually, my dissertation at university, because I did economics, but I did a sociology dissertation, which is all to do with young people, consumerism and youth culture. And actually, in the pre-war period, Mm -hmm. you know, you didn't really have teenagers. You had adults and children, but adults wore the same clothes as children. They spoke the same, you know, they'd all be in tweed caps or whatever and speaking in the same way and so on and so forth. And it was just a sort of gradual transition. And now, actually, you know, you have teens, you have tweens, you have in-betweenies, you know, it's and it's all really market-driven. And that's why kids did grow up faster back then. And like you're saying, we're wrapping them up in cotton wool now, but then we're trying in other ways to sort of fix the fact. Well, define them as well. You know, I, I think one of, the, one of the great losses, I say, uh, adopting the, the manner of a much older person, one of the great losses is that... You can't be as anonymous as a teenager as I could. You could shut yourself away when you came home from mm. school, uh, unless the phone in the hall rang. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you could, you weren't accessible. And now I, I look at my, you know, particularly my older grandsons who are 18 and 14 and think they have to be kind of available all the time. Because I know you're not, you're not particularly a fan of, of gadgets and social media. Unlike, unlike possibly your husband? Yes. <laughs> I'm always saying to him, you're digital and I'm analog. You know, the thing about social media is you, in the, even things like not even social media. I have friends that would just text me and go, how are you? And I think I can't respond to that in a text. It really annoys me, actually, when people text me. You could pick up the phone and we could have a conversation, you, you know, and then you'd know how I am properly. But And that's the thing about lots of this stuff. It's like it's very superficial. And actually, I I can't really do superficial and scratch the surface. I, I kind of want to know how you actually are, you know. And actually, I'm not very good at small talk or any of that because I kind of think of it as a bit of a waste of time because it is just sort of box ticking, isn't it? Um. Yeah, absolutely. That was the phrase I was going to use. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, saying things and doing things in 140 characters would be wasted on me. I'm not a succinct person. I'm a verbal diatribe that literally takes, you know, 10 years to sort of 
say what get my words out which isn't good for a podcast probably Jenna I'm sorry uh, I'm trying to keep it sound bitey how, how do you edit your books then Connie or are you are you more disciplined in your head when you're so writing? the books actually really really work well because what they do the story the narrative is what's happening to Cookie who's this child who actually is very similar to me in that sort of she sees the absurd in everyday life um, and she has sort of things going on in her head that are illustrated in the pictures. So I can go off on tangents, but I have to do it through the pictures. So she'll be in a scenario where, I don't know, she's saying something, but she's thinking something else. So all the pictures, all the comic strips are her head thoughts. And then, so for instance, I don't know, her teacher says, uh, it's the beginning of term. I'm just giving you stuff. I've got some announcements to make, um, class, you know, settle down or whatever. And then she says, you know, library book fines have gone up to a pound from 50p or whatever. Um, and lost property has moved and what, and, and cookies thinking to herself, you know, these aren't announcements, you know, an announcement is I'm getting married or I'm moving to Guadalupe or whatever. And so there's this sort of comic strip picture and it just shows somebody saying, I've got an announcement to make. I'm wearing grey socks to a pregnant woman that says, oh, OK, I'm just off now to become a Tibetan monk or something like that. And so you can see what's going on in her head, but it's kept sort of succinct because it's only in little sort of picture form, essentially. And you illustrate them as well, Yeah, they're, they're sort so. of little line drawing stick men illustrations, but of all the things that are going on in her head. Any cars at all? Any... <laughs> Car designs. Yeah, there is a picture of a car in it, but only because her friend's moving to Solihull, which um, she's very distressed about because she always felt like an outsider before finding this friend and their joint at the hip. And now her friend's moving to Solihull and she Googles Solihull and finds out that it's in 2013, it was voted the best place to live on earth. Um, and so she, you know, she's devastated. Her friend's moving away and she wants to get a pet because she thinks that might fill the void. And this is just this comic strip of a car driving into Solihull. And it says, welcome to Solihull, where everyone has pets. So I did draw a car in the same style. I don't think my drawing style has changed since I was that young. Um, of, yeah, of back in the days when I used to draw car brochures. I also used to do family trees and make up soap operas, like with people and like how they're all linked together. It's a bit weird. Your own family? No, just like soap. I'd make up soap operas like, because I used to like watching Dynasty. And actually I found, my, it's because my sisters, they were so much older than me. I found my diary the other day from like the 80s, from the mid 80s or something. And um, I obviously had no life at all because it literally says, dear diary, Jeff Colby is hanging off a building and Fallon might save him. You know, it's literally the plot of Dynasty was what I wrote in my diary. So that goes to show why books and telly was such a saviour for me because I had no life, literally. He always struck me as a rounded person, I have to say. (laughs) How how hard was it to decide to leave Blue Peter? Because I know when I joined the programme, which I didn't expect to ever do, you know, as an actress. I just thought, nah, nah, RSC, that's where I'm going to be. Anyway, I did and I absolutely loved Mm. it. And I always thought there'll have to be a reason for me to go because why would I leave otherwise? And of course, the reason is now 35 years old and his name is Jack. So, you know, that was a good reason. That was a good, solid, visible reason. But yours was 10 years? 
No, so actually, so was it-, it was 11 years. But I, <laughs> so uh, every time I, you know, I was, the first of all, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I didn't, I wasn't, nece- I wasn't really ambitious to do anything beyond Blue Peter because it's such a dream job. There's no other TV presenter job where you do the travel you do. You meet the people you meet, you know, everything from prime ministers to, you know, people living in a shanty town in Bangladesh. You're up a you know, mountain one day and down a sewer the next day. And so basically I never wanted to leave that show. Then there comes a time when the items start to repeat because that that generation of kids have become, you know, that's up pretty so. much every year. Well, yeah. I, I mean, mean, I had I had Sophie when I joined the programme. She was four. So she was just about to go into school. And if I hadn't had a child, I would still have been remarkably keyed into the school timetable. What's happening? Because <laughs> you follow the school year, basically, don't you? Which is really nice. Yeah. And you know, then uh, children like ha- creatures of habit and they like repetition. Yeah. So you do do all that every year. You do the advent crown or whatever. But then there comes like a sort of four year period where sort of bigger things start to repeat. Um, and then I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to leave. And then being told, well, if you stay till such and such date, you'll get to your 4,000th program. And so I said, like, oh, okay, I'm going to get to my 4,000th program. And then at one point I was going to leave because the head of children's had decided that I'd been on the show too long. So she said that I had to leave. But then I was on a one and a half year contract at the time and she left before I left. So I got a stay of execution. So I stayed on. And then it was like, you know, if you stay on now, you'll do your 10th year. And if you stay on now, you'll become the longest running female. And if you say... You'll outlast Yeah, now. so I just keep, <laughs> I kept staying and staying and staying. And then there comes time where you think, I really need to sort of progress with my life. Because you don't... I always call things Blue Peter years. So, like, if you're going out with someone or if you're doing something, it's like, oh, well, it was Blue Peter years, though. So it doesn't count <laughs> as real years, you know, like dog years or something. Because time goes so fast. Because you're always traveling somewhere or doing something um and so I guess I finally left because then I was like I really need to now sort of start thinking you know I'm in my mid-30s now and I need to have kids and I need to well I mean I don't need to but I wanted to essentially so I guess that was why I I finally made the plunge and went but really in essence I could still be on that show now yeah totally yeah Yeah, Val Val must hate that too because she's so competitive. (laughs) She must hate that you took her crown. (laughs) Yeah, no, she does tease me about it, but 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 yeah, no, she's great. (laughs) She's totally great. (laughs) Do you think? I mean, obviously, you take inspiration from all sorts of places, but do you think something of the spirit of Judy Bloom inspired and 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 really triggered your writing? Absolutely. In the like you're saying, Judy Bloom's books are very real and they're very natural. And I think, you know, if she was pitching this book today, it might not even get commissioned or made because it isn't necessarily very plot-driven. And lots of the lovely details in it are just minutiae. And actually with my books as well, Cookie is just a regular girl in a regular school. There's no magic or no sort of, you know, villainous people particularly. And actually a lot of the characters that are a bit more like villainous or whatever as a result of sort of publishers notes or people's you know edits on it or whatever uh because I did want to just tell a story of a regular child in a regular school and all the things you know the friendships that break up the jealousy the you know the internalized thoughts the feeling utterly you know betrayed by someone or utterly angry at some injustice 
I wonder if I had just sort of described it like that. I don't necessarily think the book would have got made. You know, it helps that she's Asian and that she's into science and she's from a Muslim background because those are things that you don't see that much in books. But also something that you don't see that much in books today is ordinary life told just through the eyes of an ordinary child. Well, it's, it's actually such a pleasure to encounter this book because I didn't really know it. And the only, the only slight worry I had reading it as an adult is that Fudge himself slips between sort of toddlerish and very, very mature. Did you have a problem with that? You know what? I actually think that young kids can sometimes be a bit like that. And especially back in those days where you were entrusted to sort of go to school on your own and sort of do kind of grown up things on your own. Even I remember sort of coming home from school sometimes and my mum might not be there and fixing myself a snack. Me and my sister would fix ourselves a snack. So I think it can be like that with young children in that you are a child and, you know, people uh, like treat you like a child. But then especially back then, there are other things where you have to grow up quite quickly. And even still now, you might have aspects of that. I don't know if your parents are breaking up or if you're going through some sort of big thing in life that you have to deal with. Um, so I didn't bother me at all, actually. He's told the facts of life when the baby's on the way. And then he gets so good at knowing about it that he gives little lectures <laughs> yeah. in school. I, you see, again, I think that's so plausible and relatable. And I can just picture the. I know little kids like there's a, actually a, um, a, my friend's son really reminds me of Fudge. He's just sort of really he's smart, bright little kid, but almost too clever for his own good, you know, and. So, yeah, I think all of the characters are so sort of plausible and relatable. Do your boys read it? My boys haven't read this book yet, but actually I am going to get them to read it now that I've, I've got this copy for this podcast because I hadn't revisited it for a long time, actually. And I do have my copy kicking about somewhere, but I don't know where it is exactly, in a box in the loft somewhere. So, yeah, no, I'll definitely get them onto it now. <laughs> Listen, honestly, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much Thank for talking you. to me and introducing us again to this book and for being you. Fabulous you. Oh, thank you. And I do recommend it to grown-ups and children alike. Super Fudge by Judy Bloom. It's brilliant. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton. And Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast. <laughs>